Okay, so um, we're in chapter 9, of course. And uh, anybody had a chance to sort of look at that? I mean, our leader told us to read it in the email. Remember? You might want to review. He's very sweet. He kind of acts like a socialist when he's traveling. So uh, I understand that. Yeah. He said there are no imperatives in French, so I didn't know that. <laughs> Bless his heart. Okay. <sighs> okay. So, chapter nine, getting to know people. Any insights to start off with? Because we were starting like 15 minutes early, 20 minutes early. So, we have any insights? Whoa, good. You're right. That's 10 minutes or so. Hey, get anything out of the chapter that just said, oh, this is, I'm changing, I'm, I'm repenting. Okay, so no repentance required in family life, of course. Wow. Okay. Um, so he starts off with this uh, chapter basically talking about meeting a family that They've, they've known for years, and then it fallen apart. They find out that they're fist fighting in private. There's serious abuse, both verbal and physical abuse. I mean, he's like just shocked. He's like, I, I couldn't even say anything because they just didn't know that the secret part of their life was what much different than the, the public stuff that they've um, were displaying, and so that they really weren't as together as they thought and he thought about all the years that he had invested in and he never asked the right questions he never really knew some of these things that were their most hurtful things to them and I think this is the issue and I think Jeff would be he would have loved to teach this particular block because getting to know people that's what he does best that we put the relationships um, at a pretty high priority uh, building relationships. I like my favorite thing that happened to me in this book, this whole book, this chapter nine, is what John Alley told me. <laughs> we were moving tables, and he's like, "Now that's awful risky, telling people that love is greater than theology, or something like that." Wasn't it, John? Yeah, Dick taking a chance, talking about love being greater than theology in our church because it's a John MacArthur church. Okay. So I thought I had, got, I had about a, a week to think that through, and I was like, that's probably pretty true. I mean, you know, we sort of give this appearance that you have to have it all together in a knowledge way or theological way, and theology definitely is good. But the purpose of our theology is to help us to love better and understand what true love is, and that's the important part. So good theology without having good people skills or understanding relationships is probably pretty devastating. Because we become Pharisees. We're just playing games and we're trying to have all the knowledge without any love. It has to be transformative, you know, this, this um, theology. So the reason I say that is because <clears throat> I think the idea that, that uh, he's bringing up here is that our perception of what's, what's going on is really pretty uh, skewed by our own self-deception, if you will. So sometimes the closest people to us, we really don't know what they believe and understand because we haven't really, according to him, has asked the right questions. We'll get to that. 
First thing he talks about is how we break through this. And here are just some basic principles. And we'll, I'll try to ask questions. I'm looking for your input um, and helping here because I had a pretty strenuous wedding yesterday. Which, uh, yeah, the food was just weighing me down. It was just amazing. I mean, they cooked the food while you're sitting there waiting. I mean, it was just, wasn't it? It was amazing. Whose idea was that? Probably. I mean, so, you know, you have your waiting, and there's a long line, and they're boiling your noodles, and they're, well, maybe they're okay. <laughs> they did, they did it up I mean, they had boiler noodles. They had to kill, kill the chicken, bring it in, and cook the chicken. And it was just... had to boil it, pluck it, you know. And by the time, you know, you okay, so you lost enough weight to really eat the meal. It was really good. It was, it was really sweet. No, food was wonderful. It was just everything was everything was good. Everything was good. And congratulations to Chris and John or Chrissy. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, they really... It was really a great wedding, and they're a pastor of of old. Um, he man, he did a great job too. So the the principles we have to kind of lay some foundation here. We're talking about the principle of theology when it comes breaking through the casual. This is that section here on page one sixty three, and to get to the deeper issues. I think the point we were trying to make was he took them at face value based on what they just said, and he didn't really dig deeper into their life to get to know them. Um, and so there are some issues here. We'll, we'll talk about these principles. But, and again, just in part of the introduction, I was thinking that um, how many times, how many relationships we've had that were people were so different in their appearance or how you saw them at church than what's really cooking in them. And what's cooking in them is what they really fear, what's really causes the most hurt, things that they're pondering or are are dwelling on that may cause bitterness that maybe you could have addressed earlier to help them. In this case, with his friends here, they you know they they resort to physically beating each other up. And these this is a, a key uh, family in in his church, and he was just blown away by it. But then he realized that he never really get into the got really deep into their relationship. So he has this part in here. It's called breaking through the casual. So here's some basic principles. We, we're kind of laying the groundwork to learn how, why we need to get to know people better than just preaching to them. Um, one principle is that who you are in secret is who you really are to God. Um, it's interesting that so the Lord would, would view them not based on the religious profile that they would uh, purport at church and just sort of live that way, but but who they really are in secret, what really is going on in their in their secret life. I say this all the time to people who are dealing with uh, secret sins. The more secret your sin is, the more difficult it is to repent. So the secretness has to be exposed, has to be, you have to sort of uncover that, and you have to come alongside your friends. And the more open and transparent you are, uh, the more free freedom you'll experience. And Again, he's going to make the case, and we'll see this as we go through this. And what we're trying to do here, and remember this, is that we're trying to get the most out of this book so we can become ministers of the gospel, ministers to one another in a real, real way, in a real way. And it's really helpful for me, too, as well. I really learned a lot. And he, he talks about this. There's like 18 scriptures that really talk about God knowing the heart of man. But uh, I use this one in First Kings, that 
that then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to his all his ways whose heart you know you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men and so i don't need to tell you this this is like you this would be you guys are like the the choir if you will and i think but i think sometimes we forget that you know the God knows everything anyway. So no matter how secret we are, we're really not getting away with anything. So when we're plotting, when we're angry, when we're bitter, when we're trying to, we have, we're trying to cover up certain things, we're not really covering up anything. It's, it's all open to the light, to God himself. And so the, the principle of theology is who you are in secret is who you really are to God. It's not our religious face that we put on on Sunday morning. It's not what we say um, that really identifies us. It's really how we live that identifies us, especially what we do in secret. Here's another one, um, a principle of human depravity. The fear of man keeps us from being completely open and honest with others about our true, that's our secret heart issues, life struggles. The fear of man keeps us from being completely open and honest with others about what's really going on in our life and what we struggle with. Give me an example of something like that. Well, if, you, if, if, if you've developed or cultivated this, that you have everything together, I, I call it a Facebook life. Yeah, that good. Everything's together, and I have a family member who, who's like this. Everything's great on Facebook, but then in reality it's not. Hmm. And so if, you, if, if you've cultivated that, you don't want people finding out that, hey, you don't have it all together. Yeah. And it is a struggle. Um, and I don't know why, because we are sinful. But I mean, you just, I guess maybe that makes you weak, especially as a man, that would make you weak. You, you look like, maybe feel you're, you're weak. In your sure, life. sure. Because you're, you, I shouldn't be struggling with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's good. Facebook life. That's a good analogy, isn't it? That is really good. Anybody else? Our culture focuses so much on appearance. Right, right. Amen. So the human depravity means there's, there is a, a life of deception. I know that in theology they call it noetic effect of sin, that when you're in sin or when you're hiding sin, there's a deception built into that. You're self-deceived. And so um, God has to bring on the light to help you get through that. Here's another one, um, a principle of, of relational dynamics most of our shallow conversations are usually for one or more of these following reasons. Here they go. One, habits in being superficial or religious or positive face. I think we brought that out. Some, I think even Fred talked about that. Any other comments on that? What are some of the examples of that? Habits in being superficial. Cultural is what Mark talked about, but anything else? How are you? Fine. Yeah, fine. <laughs> yeah, the most abused Common, com- how are you doing? Fine. You know you're not fine. <laughs> There's no way. Not fine. You're not fine. So what else? Any other comments on that? We're trying to get deeper. We want to learn to infiltrate, if you would, the real life so we can be a minister, not a judge. A minister. I think a lot of even that, that kind of how are you fine comes from even just the self-centeredness um, of ourselves where <coughs> we don't really want to know how you are. Say it because we really would rather talk about ourselves. We really don't want to sit here and listen to all your problems. Right. Um, but not really. So it's kind of just like, okay, just 
okay, I did my, my hi, hi, how are you? And I can move on and do what I really want to do. No, that's good. That's good. So there could be a more um, problematic motive in that we really don't want to know because it's really going to cause us to have more responsibility. And it makes us uncomfortable. Right, and right. And then we don't really want to delve that deep in, in your sin or what's going on with you because that makes me uncomfortable and I really don't know. <coughs> right. So the more you understand that, the more you're responsible to respond to it, to pray for them, to help them, maybe even to say something about that that's more helpful and encouraging. So it really causes some responsibility. So some people avoid that. It's good. Very good, Katie. Good. We also cannot be in fear of losing that relationship because getting, you know, getting yeah. more involved in someone's life or asking them questions that might make them uncomfortable. Um, some people, I think that there's a fear that they're going to stay away from us or that we're, you know, they're not going to, they don't want to be found out. Yeah. You know, but some people you can see on their face if you really look at people, you can you can see difficulties. It's really hard sometimes to hide it. Mm-hmm. But then to say, is there any way I can help you, or is there something I can do for you? You know, we have that fear that we're going to lose that relationship, and we can't do that. We have to be able to set our own fear aside and say it doesn't matter. What matters is them not what might happen to me. Hmm. But it's more important to take a risk to help someone. Yep. I think the reason why a lot of times I say fine is because when somebody's asking me how are you, it's usually more walking opposite directions. Like, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How are you? Doing well. And we, so I think there's many people come to church and we come in, we're late, and that's why I think it's important. I'm not trying to Yeah. When we're rushing into church, when we're rushing out of church, that's why the lunches, I think, uh, our family life lunches are incredibly important because we actually have time to sit down. It's hard to find out how people are doing when you don't, when you're not making the time. And so you have to be intentional. Hey, let's go out for coffee because then I can find out how Katie is. We had a great conversation. We, we've had those breakfast groups with the ladies. They're awesome. Yeah. You can just sit down and say, how are things going? And smoke a sure. little later. Oh, that's good. Um, but really, yeah. when, when someone, when I go to ask somebody a question, I mean, really, nine times out of ten, it, you know, we're, it's like we're passing each other. Yeah, and I don't know if that's the right venue to be very open and say right. things aren't fine. Right. Because right. it's sort of polite for me to walk by and I go by Nate and he say, how are you doing? I go, I'm fine. But that's a polite response at that moment. But it's like, oh, things aren't fine. Things are falling apart. How about you? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there is a venue for that. I mean, it's like, uh, so I, I don't know if, if trip is tripping, but it just seems like it could be. Yeah. Anyway, so that's another, here's another one. Self-protective and untrusting to go any deeper or further than that. So you can kind of feel that way, can't you? That, well, they expect me, like, you know, could, would you expect Brian or Tracy to be very open about things that they're they're not really happy about or that they're struggling with and in, in a setting where you're seeing them from a day-to-day and they're the spiritual leaders i mean i mean it's really important that to understand that there is a venue to this but we are all self-protective did you have a question yeah i was just going to oh, comment sure about i think i think most of the 
position of somebody that's asked you a question. I think a big thing is just, it takes a lot of work to be open, and it takes a lot of intentionality. Yes. And it's much easier to talk about the weather and sports, and so that's what we do. Like, it takes it takes effort, because you, you have to probe yourself first. Yeah. And actually, and hopefully there's already self-analysis, but then you have to do that and, and you know, verbalize that to someone else, you know, or either you have to ask intentional questions, and that all takes a lot of work, and like I said, so that's why we end up talking about the weather and sports instead, even when we do gather and have enough time. Like, even if we're not in a situation where we're passing in the hallway, you know, even when we do gather for, you know, lunches or Sunday school, it's like, the topic of conversation is light because we're lazy. Yep. No, it's good, man. Very good. I mean, something thought-provoking, isn't it? My, this boy that I asked for prayer, he called me last night and announced after we hadn't talked for a year now. He announced he's going to be married to this girl, and he's all excited and everything, and and that he let go of all this bitterness and was divorced because his pastor Joel Osteen had mentioned a couple of things in his sermon, and and he and I'm, I'm like I caught this in my mind. I'm like so the first thing I do is I default to biblical thinking, and I'm like, okay, you, do you realize that your pastor is a heretic? I didn't say that, but this is what comes in my heart, right? So I mean I could have given him a message on six reasons. Joe Osteen's a heretic, but that, but am I, but I'm trying to develop a relationship and keep the bridge back to the gospel, and so I, I just listened to him and processed it, and we just worked through it, a couple things and just asked some real gentle questions. But again, I had to practice letting, you know, building the relationship rather than trying to be right. And so that's where our theology. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Here's another one: small talk, comfortable. That's why we do this sometimes, right? We're just comfortable with small talk. I see I've had some counseling appointments where a person never went on a date in 26 years with his wife. Uh, he said, because all we do, we just we live in the small talk, so there's no controversy. We don't have to deal with controversy. And, we, and he said that. We live where we live a very superficial. We live in the small talk of life. And that's not where the real things cook and, and work. Um. And then he goes on to talk about the data. Uh, let me see if I have a point here I wanted to breaking through. So the fear of man keeps us from exposing our secrets of life a lot of times. And I think Cindy kind of brought that out. Um, and then he goes on in the book on page 164. He talks about in this part. Of, of getting to know each other, but um, uncovering the real problem, breaking through the casual. He says there are three main reasons our relationships are trapped in the casual. Uh, that's because one is that in our business we we are we despair in squeezing ten dollar conversations into ten cent moments. Um, and he really kind of unpacks that a little bit. Again, we I think we sort of covered most of that. The other one is that things casual, and we buy the lie that we are unique and struggle in ways that no one else does, and so why should I burden another person with that? And the last one was because we do not see the Bible has much to say about that we are personally blind. I think that's our self-deception. A lot of times we're, we're thinking, I can handle this. It's not that bad. There's no reason for them to know about it. It's just going to cause gossip. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so some we were deceived that we don't really need anyone to help us, but we do. We do. 
Okay, so this is on the Christ gatherer. The data gatherer is on page 165, and, and this is where we get to the Bible. That was all an introduction. Brian does this all the time to us. So we get an introduction to the Bible passage, which is Hebrews 4. If you want, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, 4.14 through 16. All my pages are stuck together. <laughs> so would somebody like to read that? 4, 14, 15, and 16? Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. So this Hebrews 4 is is a big passage for him. When he says Christ, the data gatherer, he's really talking about God came and formed man and spent three and a half years developing data on the human life. Because he experienced um, the suffering. He learned to suffer, to obey in, in his suffering. Uh, Hebrews 5, I think it is. But, uh, but the idea is that, you know, he was experiencing everything that we experience in suffering and the day-to-day life and what it means to be cold or hungry or sleepless and people and people problems. And so he was, he's the data gatherer. And he brings a conclusion to this. Um, I think I find it. Let me see if I've. I just want to give you these three major things here. Yeah, here it is. So from verse 14, um, he talks about, this is the point I made on it, was God provides the relational security of our transparency. We're trying to get people to be transparent. That's the idea, isn't it? We want, we want to be transparent. We want folks that we're investing in to be transparent. So God provides the relational security in that and that God is perfect. He's the great high priest. He came from the heavens. He, he, so we can hold fast to our confession. There's a, there is a security and a, and a, and a consistency in God. And so God is perfect. And we know that he provides the security to be transparent. We can be transparent because God is transparent. The second thing he brought up in verse 15, he talked about, we, he cannot, who's the priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And he makes a big deal about the word weakness from the original language here. But I put on here that Jesus modeled relational sensitivity in our transparency. So he sympathizes in our weaknesses. So he's very relationally sensitive in our transparency. So we can be transparent because Christ is transparent and and then because he's sensitive to our weaknesses as well. So therefore, our brothers in Christ, our the family of God, should be sensitive to our transparency as well. Sometimes we don't believe that. We don't want to believe that or we won't believe that, but it's true though. People really care about us. They don't just care about just getting information to use against us, but they care about us. We just are sort of living a lie to believe otherwise. In verse 16, he also says, uh, therefore let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Let us do our part uh, so that we receive mercy and, and find grace in the time of need, help in the time of need. That's verse 16. This is what we do when we actually make ourselves an open book to someone to say, come on, help me. I need help. 
And I put this as a title, we practice relational vulnerability in our transparency. So we have to be vulnerable. We have to be, you know, we have to be open. We have to be willing to even be hurt by people taking that information and using against us. We have to be willing to do that so we can be better prepared and we can get the most out of our sanctification, basically. And so Hebrews 14 talks about Christ the great gathered out of We're going to keep moving because um, let's talk about the problem. Then he goes on, moves on. Once we get this information, we have a problem with assumptions. You know, the problem with assumptions. Anybody remember anything part of that that really that really struck you? Assumptions, making assumptions. What's the problem with making assumptions most of the time? Huh? Yeah, they could be wrong. That's that's a good one. Um, Thinking that someone should respond in a certain way to a problem because that's how I would respond instead of finding out how they're responding. You just kind of assume that you should respond in a certain way. No, good. You are making an assumption about them, and you are wrong in that assumption. And so you can't really minister to someone. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's very good. Anybody else? Right. And we're thinking first Corinthians ten thirteen, you know, there is nothing that isn't common to man. So we but we forget those biblical truths, but we're so we it's kind of a myopic kind of a thinking that there this is it. This I'm the only one, this is the only problem, I'm the only one that understands this. Also look and flip it over this way, is that your perspective of life isn't the only one. And that's that's another thing that becomes problematic. Here's some principles of making assumptions. Um we don't take the time to gently ask probing questions. To understand what people meant by what they said, we default to making assumptions about people. So uh, I've just made that up but because it's based on the chapter, but basically what, this is what his idea is, that he's moving to this direction. If you remember the book, uh, the chapter on here, he was like, you, the, the major part of this whole book is on asking good questions. Asking the very good questions. We have to take the time to ask questions and to get to the bottom of it. We'll talk more about that. But here's um, uh, the the principle of duplicity, self-deception. What people say about themselves or believe about something is rarely what defines the complete or true reality of their perspective. So we have spoken versus functional principle. If you ever remember that, I guess if you remember when we were talking about that, we have a spoken theology but we have a, th- a functional theology that's far lower. We're not functioning at the level that we think that we're Christian, think that we're obedient, think that we're loving, think that we're relational. But there's a functional part of us that still withdraws and is self-protective and doesn't trust and doesn't want to be open, doesn't want to be hurt, is a fear of man. All kinds of things are resonating in your heart that try to keep your 
keep your perspective away from the biblical truth of that. And so there's a duplicitous life because we have this funk two lives, two things going on. We have the flesh, what part of our human flesh is controlling or dominating or has more influence than the, the Bible. Um, last night when um, they gave these little cards, um, a little slips and said, write something to the, to the bride and the groom. And I always want to say something that's funny because, you know, I want to be too, I want to be too serious. But I thought, no, this is a moment. So I just said, read your Bible like it, like your life depends on it. Read it every day like your life depends on it. And be quick to forgive because you're going to need a lot of forgiveness in your own life. That was my statement to him. Because being married, you understand what I mean by that. Is that, you know, eventually you want them to always be forgiving. But you're going to need a lot of forgiveness. You know, you're, it's really, so you have to learn to forgive. And, and I think the idea was you can't have a Christian life that you're not really living it out somewhere in some way. And I know that there's sort of a, they call that integrity gap between what you say and what you really function like uh, in counseling. And so I, I sort of uh, see that in my own life constantly as I'm counseling. It's just constantly uh, brings that back to, to light. Now, that's just a duplicity principle, but here's some reasons, uh, two main reasons. Number one, he says it's the theological and I sort of added this, but it's becoming a biblical truth cookie cutter. What does that mean to you? What does that mean? I mean I'm not trying to say anything bad about biblical truth, Lord willing. <laughs> I could be working at liberty. I can do a, I could be doing an unspiritual thing and be working at liberty. Tomorrow, if I, if pastor thinks I'm trying to, I disrespect truth. But what's our theological problem? What's the problem making assumptions with our theological perspective? What's this mean? If you read the book, you got the answer, of course. Anybody remember? He said, go ahead. Yes. Amen. That's the point, isn't it? We're assuming everybody's functioning like the Bible says they are because people are saying they are. And so we're not really probing in the specifics of how they how that plays out. So he uses the analogy of noses. There's there's only one. There's a human nose. But there's so many kinds of noses. He says there's the same thing with human bodies. You can say well, the human body is the human body. You know, it's, it's nothing else but the human. But then there's so much uniqueness to it that we need to get to know how it functions and the same thing in the spiritual life you want to get to know people their life's functioning differently so think about it as sort of radiating around the truth of whatever they want it to be but it may not be there also they're in a process i've learned to help move into a place where my kids are and help them walk with them until i can see them and ask questions and and challenge them and love them through the process, but I try, try not to expect them to be wherever I think they should be. So the Bible says this about my spouse. So why aren't they functioning like that? <laughs> because the reality is you have in, invaded their own life and learned to be what, where are they in the walk to try to accomplish that and to live where they live and try to help out. So we become cookie cutters. We just say, this is what it is. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And we we have very we can hurt people with theology if we're not 
using it properly. And the other one is the experiential part of this, um, our experiences. Um, we, we have individual personifying of others. Again, we're, uh, we're expecting them to be like us or what we think is the perfect person. And we're not really getting probing into their life to figure out what this is about. Any other questions or thoughts about this? Any comments? Amen. No, no, it's good, Trish, because uh, we forgot to mention that because you, you're you gathering data when you're listening as well. Jesus was a great listener as well. I mean, you think about this. We always had the same. My buddy in Florida, uh, Pastor Bernard King, the former NFL guy, he, he told me, he and I came to this conclusion that people tell on themselves. Now, it's not bad. They're just honestly what you talk about, what you what you value in life what's important to you, what you're in fear of, what hurts you the easiest, the most sensitivity things in your life. If you listen to people, they'll tell you where they're at theologically or biblically or on the spiritual journey. We make a lot of assumptions, but, yeah, I think we have to be good listeners. Uh, we can't uh, just block it out because we're waiting to tell them something we want to know. We want, we're, we're listening, and we want we should probe and ask good questions. Um, I think that's excellent. That's excellent. We... Um, Another place where we become um, presumptuous, or at least making wrong assumptions, is that um, we assume when people say they're saved, they're saved. And we assume because somebody's in disobedience, they're not saved. <laughs> and both those things are not true. Those things are not true. Just because a person says they're saved doesn't make them saved. Because we don't know the heart of man. God knows who's actually saved. Now, we understand there's fruit inspection. We understand all those things. But we don't know every moment. Is this behavior habitual? How long? Are they in turmoil over it? We don't know exactly what's happening in that process, but uh, we don't want to be assuming anything theologically or by experience. So our conclusion we have is three things to do to combat the temptation of assuming Always ask people to define their terms. Give me an example of that. That was my, sorry, that was my phone. That was, there wasn't bells in my pants. It was my phone that was doing that. <laughs> I wanted to see if Ben would sing Jingle Bells for us. While sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. Yeah, I know you. That was, that was Brian. Anyway, uh, you're right. No, I'm sorry. And I think that let's just talk about that a little bit. The misunderstanding or, or, or the concepts or perception of what's going on a lot of times is the enemy. Because you might be saying the same thing with two different terminologies. Now, I'm not saying we're, we're proponents of all these terms. Like recently this other person told me that they apologized. And I'm really, 
I'm, I have to be careful because that's, that's like a, a hit to where I live, and I have like no apologies different than forgiveness. Uh, but they were, but once I explained forgiveness, they understood it. And so they were just used to using that term to explain their forgiveness. When they came up, they were saying, I'm taking full responsibility, I'm confessing I'm guilty, but I'm apologizing for that. So they used a, a different term. And so I wanted to make sure I listened, and we, we, we asked questions to see if we're on the same page. Good. Was Always. That the example you used about when you say we had a huge fight? Yeah. And what your perception and what you believe, what a huge fight is yeah. with your husband. Yeah, for us, it used to be like a gunfight. But it was like, you know, and I knew the 38 only went 50 yards, and I, so I was, so we kind of always navigated around that. But when you say something's a big fight, it could be that they, you know, they said a bad word to each other, or yeah. But when I think about that, I'm thinking, okay, so how much ammo did you have? How did you reload? You know. Well, we think of family disturbances at the house. The doors are torn off yeah. the house. Yeah, we go up and, and there'd be furniture thrown outside because they got mad or all the plates are broken in the house or whatever, you know. Yeah. That was just a disagreement. That was just a disagreement. That wasn't, even, that wasn't a real fight yet. No, no. No, that's true. Wow. Yeah. I said, why are you angry? And he said, like, angry? Nothing's flying. <laughs> anger. <laughs> anger, aren't you still walking? I'm not angry about anything. <laughs> so it was funny because to me, I was like, Exactly right. And people don't understand because when you say something, they're interpreting. They're interpreting that based on their own worldview. So, like, we're driving to our first family reunion. I tell Cindy, hey, now this is a big German family. My mom has nine brothers. Most of them are combat veterans. They're all Catholic, so they have 10, 15 kids apiece. I got 100 cousins. This is, they're volatile. They drink too much beer. This is terrible. She goes, oh, okay. I said, they're always a fight. Okay. Well, she didn't. She's okay. She has an English family who drinks tea twice a day, you know. <laughs> and so uh, we get over to the thing, and they're fist fighting in the front yard before we even get out of the car. We have to break up a fight. She takes one down. I take the other one down. We take them into the, And, and we, she, we're doing that before we even get into the party. So she said, oh, now I know what you meant. It's like, you know, yeah. Number two. Huh? Okay, I'm going. Always ask people to clarify what they mean. That's another thing. When they say a big family fight, give me, what do you mean by that? You see what I'm saying? Ask more questions. Try to clarify the, the how. How, you, how are you clarifying them? Give me some concrete things. The best thing is to say, can you give me an example of that? And say, I really do this. You know, I have, I have, a, lot of, I have a lot of peace. And I go, well, what's that mean? I have a lot of peace in my walk. Get asked to clarifying questions. And the last one is ask people to explain the why they responded this way. So what were you thinking, and why did you respond that way? What were you thinking at that moment? And, and just probe and ask questions. It's not just for the counselor. It's for us to get deeper into our relationships um, so we can, we can minister to people, and we, we can model that by being transparent ourselves, right? Father, thank you for our time and my friends and the fun we have. When Jeff's gone, we have so much more fun, and we're so thankful. We bring them back safely, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.